Hey everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name's Tanner, and I'll be one of your hosts today. This is the first episode of Season 4 of the show, so welcome back everyone. We took a little break for the holidays, and now we are back and ready to go. Over break, we did collect some new patrons, so major thanks to those of you who joined us on Patreon during the break. Thank you to Rebecca, Sahar, and Mark. Uh, Last week, we actually put out the first bonus episode for the year, and that's available for all patrons over on Patreon. We talked about Elizabeth Friedman and the birth of the U.S. Coast Guard's intelligence capabilities. So let's go ahead and bring in Taylor. Taylor, how's it going? Not too bad. It is nice to be doing this again. I feel like it's been a little while, like since we've done just a regular episode. Yeah, it really has. So good to be back. Yeah, with the holidays and then, you know, just all the other crazy things going on. It, uh, it's good to have a little time to do this. And I will say it was actually a lot of fun uh, recording that bonus episode. That was a good one. It was a nice start into the season. Uh, what have you been up to in our time off? Doing Christmas, um, I had like a nasty little cold mixed in there for that, like that kind of took me out of action for a week. It was one of those where like you're you're just sick enough to be sick, but you're not like go to the ER sick. But I'm um, glad that that's all done. I don't know, um, surviving, getting through the holidays like everybody else. But um, what about you? Big thing I did finally saw the Barbie movie. Okay, nice, nice. That was was good. We liked it. Yeah, I thought the Barbie movie was good. I had no idea what to expect going into it, but it it was fun. I'm also reading the book Endurance by Alfred Lansing. Nice. I've been wanting to get into polar stories, some of which we can probably cover on here. But I felt like before going into more niche topics, you got to know something about Shackleton mm-hmm. before getting into polar exploration, I feel like. Yeah, I feel like that's like the starting point. It's like the 101. <laughs> Um, I'm also reading a book called Red Leviathan by Ryan Tucker Jones. It's one that Katie got me for Christmas. It's about the Soviet whaling industry. Interesting. I don't know if we actually mentioned it, but it came up in that book, uh, The Great Sperm Whale, that I used as a reference for the Essex episodes. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of an interesting subset of whaling history, obviously, in the in the 20th century. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to get more into that. I'm thinking of like a Nantucketer, but like Soviet, like what, like that combination of person. Gilles de Bill Chilovic is Nantucketa. <laughs> uh, as far as like media stuff for me, um, I'm almost done with The Great War by Peter Hart. Uh, just kind of a high level overview of World War One. Um, I think reading those, like you learn new things. But it's more about like things you already knew about, just kind of how they fit together. So it's always nice getting another pass through of that. And then I just purchased Blood and Thunder by Hampton Sides. Um, and it focuses on Kit Carson. I kind of wanted to switch it up and go in a different direction. So I haven't read something more focused on like the white side of the Western story in a while. So mm-hmm. I think kind of reading some of the things like bury my heart at wounded knee and now coming back to something like this, just interesting how you t- take that information in differently when you're, you're seeing 
different perspectives and everything. And then uh, the only other thing I've started watching through YouTube more just to try to like do different stuff and not just, uh, you know, watch the same two shows over and over. And I found another Urbex channel that I like the, uh, I hate the name of it. It's bros of decay, but (laughs) they're European. One guy's from Belgium and one guy's from Portugal and watching them (laughs) go through like an old abandoned American mall and just be amazed. And then wonder like wonder of everything is kind of funny. But um, I don't know. It's fun. I like those Urbex things. Like it's it's fun to see, you know, kind of see places that I don't want to get, you know, arrested for you know, breaking and entering and going into. But I'm I'm very interested as to what they look like. Digging through the ruins of uh, a sunglass hut. <laughs> yep. One other thing we've got here is we have congratulations are in order to Andrew, our fantasy football champion. Good job uh, Andrew. for the Beyond the Breakers Fantasy League. Uh, you and I didn't do super well. I may not have checked the fantasy stuff as much as I should have. I think I was about mid-table somewhere in there, but congratulations to Andrew. And we were brainstorming, what should we do for the champion of the fantasy football league this time around? And we settled on, Andrew, if there's a specific story, a specific wreck, a specific maritime disaster that you would like us to cover... Let us know, and we will cover that. I will try to get that covered in February. Uh, Hit us up with your topic of choice, and we will bump that one to the front of the line. All right, so are we ready? Are you ready to to kick off season one? Season four? Season four. Episode one? Yeah, season four, episode one. Are you ready for this, whatever we're doing? I think I remember what to do. I don't know. Have you heard of a ship called the Good Reuben James? I have. Well, then I guess we're done here. The end. Episode over. We had teased this on uh, on social media last week at some point. It was a really vague tease. Uh, still, at least one person got what we were getting at. <laughs> I think it was literally just part of a headline. So we're going to talk about the USS Reuben James, a story that many of you are probably familiar with. Uh, maybe some of you know the name. Maybe some of you know the song. Uh, so we will kind of explore the lead up to the Reuben James and the impact of the Reuben James. So what is a Reuben James? Sounds like a sandwich. The USS Reuben James was a Clemson class destroyer commissioned into the US Navy in September of 1920. That's an awkward time to be commissioned into the United States Navy. It is, you know, we're pumping out the the ships for World War 1 and then the war ends. And what do we do now? We uh, arm the Coast Guard and turn them into our miniature Navy. Yes, as we talked about in the bonus episode. So the design of the Clemson class, uh, of which more than 150 were built, was tailored towards the increasingly important role of anti-submarine naval combat. We talked about this with the Lusitania, but the idea that pre-World War I, no one really expected the submarine to be the looming figure that it became. Mm-hmm. And so as the war progresses, they realize we have to be designing ships with these in mind. Ukraine did to drones what World War One did to submarines. <laughs> like, it, like, it's always going to be like, oh, this is a thing. Now we have to find the counter to that. Compared to previous destroyer designs, the Clemsons would have longer range and more capacity for depth charges at the expense of a reduced top speed. Uh, so the Reuben James was 314 feet in length, 30 feet in beam and originally designed for a top speed of 35 knots, 
total cost for her construction, armament, and equipment came to about $2 million. So she's pretty, like, state-of-the-art, dare I say, like, when she comes out. Like, this isn't old technology, necessarily. For the time, the rapid industrialization of warfare, so it's like, these things are constantly changing. Mm -hmm. There's, like, a new class of destroyers being designed, like, every year. For the time, that interwar period, probably pretty, pretty nice. Uh, so in terms of armament, the Clemson class had four four-inch guns on deck, a three-inch anti-aircraft gun, and 12 torpedo tubes. Just a note here, keep your notes on the Clemson class destroyers, as we're going to need them when we eventually talk about the Honda Point disaster. All of the ships involved with the Honda Point disaster were Clemson class destroyers. At the time of the story we will be discussing today, the New York Times described the Reuben James as... A low-lying, four-stack destroyer of the long-familiar type, identical in design with the 50 destroyers traded to Great Britain under the Least Lynn program. Like her sister ships, the tall stacks shown in photographs had been cut down to stubs so that it presents racy lines in profile as it and the other destroyers zigzagged along the predetermined course. I like the use of racy in that. Uh-huh. That's like a different way than we use the word racy now. Yeah, that is fun. It makes me think that the destroyer has a lewd or suggestive design to it. Like it has an OnlyFans that the Navy doesn't know about. Like a very curvy destroyer. <laughs> this is like back in the day when people were like getting off to Betty Boop. So you never know what. <laughs> the ship was named for Reuben James, a member of the U.S. Navy who served as a bosun's mate during the first Barbary War. The traditional tale associated with Reuben James is that of his heroic rescue of Lieutenant Stephen Decatur, taking a blow from a Barbary Corsair's saber that was aimed at Decatur. However, that story has been found to be likely a misattribution, mm -hmm. with U.S. sailor Daniel Fraser being Decatur's actual rescuer. Oh. So I'm. it seems like Reuben James served, you know, honorably enough. But that particular story that made him famous doesn't seem to actually be him involved. I was kind of feeling bad for Fraser here, but all's well that ends well. I did see that Fraser would also have a Benson class destroyer named for him, which launched in 1942 and served in the Pacific. So everyone yeah, gets their, something. their, you know, their, their just rewards here. <laughs> Almost take a saber to the brain and your reward is that Long, long after you're around to see it, they name a ship after you. <laughs> so given that she was constructed just after the end of World War I, the beginning of her career is pretty quiet. There's not really a lot of fighting to be done at this point. Mm -hmm. Well, not fighting against humans, I guess we'll say. <laughs> there are smaller organisms that you could fight against. Mm -hmm. One mention of the Reuben James did come in public health reports published in May of 1920. Can I ask a question? Okay. Are these organisms micro? They're pretty small. Okay. They're pretty small. Public health reports published in May of 1927 under the section heading Outbreaks of Food Poisoning Recently Reported in the Navy uh, under the subsection Food Poisoning Caused by Cheese. An extensive outbreak of food poisoning suspected to have resulted from the eating of cheese occurred on board the USS Reuben James on October 15, 1926. All messes were affected, excepting one mess in which the cheese was not served. Oh, I bet there was some messes. 
Of 105 members of the crew, 40 had poisoning symptoms. The first man to be affected was taken ill about three hours after the meal, or about 9 p.m., and by midnight, 37 other men had appeared for treatment. Two became ill after midnight. All had completely recovered by noon the following day. I can't believe I read that without laughing. I was worried it was going to be like a um, like a chocolate fudge chunks situation from the uh, <laughs> from the Dave Matthews episode. In that same set of reports, there are other subsections, like with different ships, uh, different locations. Uh, other subsections include outbreak of fish poisoning, food poisoning from eating boiled smoked tongue. And my favorite, poisoning caused by corned beef hash. Listen, <laughs> I, how long am I sick? I like, <laughs> if it's just an upset tummy after for a little bit. Was it worth it? it. <laughs> Depending on how good that hash is. So shifting, shifting back to business here. Let's talk about the neutrality acts of the 1930s. Okay. Uh, so in the 1930s, there's a strong push for the U.S. to remain neutral in any European war and avoid a repeat of the U.S. being dragged into the first one. To be fair, we did a lot better this time of staying out of the European war. When we talk about uh, we do a unit on like the presidency and election cycles and things like that with my students and campaign slogans is one of the things that we always talk about. One of my favorite to, to show them is Woodrow Wilson's in 1916 because he runs under the slogan. He kept us out of war <laughs> and he wins, of course. And then mm-hmm. the next year we are in the war. That is funny. Roosevelt had basically carbon copied that um, in his 1940 campaign saying, I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. I'm just going to read that again in normal voice and just, just describe which one I like better. I don't know. I kind of liked that. I'll definitely do the Roosevelt voice. It would have been funny if you had said that all normal until the very last word. Was. <laughs> That's what we talk about when I because I show them um, his inauguration speech and his Pearl Harbor speech. It's usually a later thing in listening speaking where we look at American accents and comparing it to how Roosevelt is speaking. So we can talk about like the transatlantic mm-hmm. accent and how Americans value things that sound British. I wish the transatlantic accent would come back. I wish it was a valid thing that you could, because like no one ever actually spoke that way. Mm-hmm. I wish that we could do that. I wish we could adopt that for daily speech. And it wouldn't be weird. Like I feel like right now everyone would look at you like you're a freak. So the first neutrality act that was passed by Congress in August 1935 was a blanket ban on the trading of weapons and other war material with nations actively involved in a war described as, quote, arms, ammunition and implements of war. In addition to the restriction on arms trading, this act also provided guidance on U.S. citizens traveling on ships of belligerent nations, saying basically, it's an at-your-own-risk situation. We are not legally responsible if you are on one of these ships, and it is some. Probably thinking about the Lusitania when they're thinking about these things. Mm -hmm. An example of a conflict that was covered by this was the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. So this prevented American companies from selling material to either side. And this is kind of the crux of the neutrality argument is saying we are going to be totally out of this. We're not going to sell to either side. And in a situation like this, Italy versus Ethiopia, of course, if we were selling to someone, it would have been Italy. 
Yeah, there's like one guy in America that's like, you know, his business is ruined because he can't sell to Ethiopia anymore. (laughs) So the first neutrality act was set to expire after six months, but it would be renewed in February of 1936 with added restrictions placed on not just material assistance to belligerent nations, but also loans and financial support. So you can't give weapons, you can't give money to nations that are involved in a war. But there's a little complication we'll see here. As written, the Neutrality Act applied to hostilities between nations. It had no mechanism for restricting arms dealing to participants in a civil war. And in 1936, this is exactly what happens in Spain. For a time, you have several of, of the big American companies that you can think of from the time your GMs, your Fords, Standard Oil, selling stuff to the nationalists under Franco in Spain. Because they're not technically breaking the law, this is not a war between two nations, this is a civil war. Interesting. The Neutrality Act of 1937 closed the loophole for civil wars, and it also banned U.S. citizens from traveling on board vessels of belligerent nations. That's like not actually enforceable. I don't feel like. I don't think so. I don't know what it, legal I, force I guess there like was it's behind more it. like if you're on it and it gets sunk, like not our fault, not our problem. Basically, I think that's what it is saying. So through all this, President Roosevelt had been against these neutrality acts. He opposed them in principle, uh, but he signed them into law due to public and political pressure. By and large, Americans did want to stay neutral, and he went along with that in exchange for, you know, other stuff. It's always a give and take in politics. But one major change in the Neutrality Act of 1937 that did actually bring the nation more in line with Roosevelt was the cash and carry provision. Belligerent nations were allowed, at the discretion of the president, to acquire any items except arms from the United States, so long as they immediately paid for such items and carried them on non-American ships. Since vital raw materials, such as oil, were not considered implements of war, the cash and carry clause would be quite valuable to whatever nation could make use of it. Roosevelt had engineered its inclusion as a deliberate way to assist Great Britain and France in any war against the Axis powers, since he realized that they were the only countries that had both the hard currency and ships to make use of cash and carry. Uh, And those quotes come from the Office of the Historian at history.state.gov, a page about the Neutrality Acts. What this reminded me of was when we talked about World War I, and the United States' status uh, before we entered World War I of being, you know, technically neutral, saying we will we will trade with anyone. But of course, that's kind of an empty mm-hmm. offer to Germany at the time, because Germany cannot physically get to the United States. Um, that's really only open to Britain and France. It's kind of the same thing here of saying, well, technically you can you can give aid to to these nations, but of course Germany can't take advantage of it. Right. Roosevelt tried to have cash and carry expanded to cover actual weapons in 1939 after the German invasion of Czechoslovakia, but Congress initially rejected that plan. Um, But public opinion is changing at the time. Germany is getting increasingly blatant with their aggression in Europe. Poland is invaded in September, triggering declarations of war from Britain and France. So in November of 1939, Congress passed what would be the final iteration of the Neutrality Act, which applied the cash and carry rule to all belligerent powers, 
in a given conflict and opened it up to arms shipments. It's just funny that we wait for the war to kick off and then we're like, oh, by the way, we can sell arms now, too. American ships were still banned from transporting these goods themselves to belligerent ports. So there's still some restrictions on this, but this is opening things up quite a bit. The neutrality acts are mainly focused on merchant shipping. But what's the U.S. Navy been up to all this time? Yeah, what have they been doing? For most of the interwar period, the U.S. Navy had been administratively one fleet, just kind of being shifted to the Atlantic or Pacific as needed. But with growing concerns about Japan in the Pacific, the fleet's assets had been mostly shifted over there. By January of 1939, the U.S. fleet in the Atlantic had only three quite old battleships, three heavy cruisers, a destroyer squadron, and one as yet unfinished carrier, the Ranger. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. In June 1940, Congress approved a 25% tonnage increase in ship construction for carriers, cruisers, and submarines with the goal of establishing a real, true, two-ocean navy. That's probably a good call. Rather than splitting a one-ocean navy across two of them. So through the summer of 1940, there's negotiations between the U.S. and Great Britain for the transfer of American destroyers to Britain in exchange for American rights to establish naval bases in several British territories in the Atlantic and Caribbean. I believe it's like a 99-year lease. So this deal is eventually finalized on August 30th of 1940, and 50 American destroyers deemed not vital to U.S. security (laughs) were transferred to the Royal Navy. Do you know why they were not vital to U.S. security? Um... I imagine it's kind of like the Abrams tanks that aren't vital to our security that we gave to Ukraine. They're probably old. They're pieces of shit. (laughs) These are old. Most of them are poorly maintained. They need a lot of work. So it's 50 destroyers on paper. I I don't think I included it here, but at one point, Churchill made a comment that, yeah, we could use like seven of those. (laughs) So thanks. I don't know if the British knew that before they got them or if it was a surprise. Did we sell them a lemon? I don't know. By December of 1940, the Navy's making plans for convoy escorts using American ships. And the reorganization of the U.S. Navy progressed as well. Quoting here from Douglas Norton, writing in the Naval War College Review. In February 1941, Navy forces were reorganized to reflect the nature of American concern with the world situation. The U.S. fleet was abolished, and former components redesignated as the Pacific, Atlantic, and Asiatic fleets. To command the new Atlantic fleet, Roosevelt chose Admiral Ernest King, uh, recently elevated to four-star rank. Continuing from Douglas Norton. Three days after assuming command, King placed the patrol force on a wartime footing, requiring the ships to be habitually darkened at night, fuel and stores to be maintained at capacity, and that anti-mine, anti-submarine, and anti-aircraft protective measures be taken. His philosophy of command can be summed up in two phrases. Initiative of the subordinate, and make the best of what you have. In a circular letter to his officers, he emphasized that war was inevitable, and subordinates would then be required to exercise a high degree of initiative. The time to build that was now. Subordinates are to be habituated to think, to judge, to decide, 
and to act for themselves. If they did not, we shall be in sorry case when the time for action operations comes. In March of 1941, the Lend-Lease Act is passed in Congress, basically doing away with the restrictions of the Neutrality Acts and moving the U.S. even further to really being in the war. And there were those in Congress who were growing increasingly on edge about the Navy's actions. Michigan Representative Roy Woodruff of the Progressive Party spoke before the House of Representatives on April 14th, warning that the increasing cooperation between the U.S. and Royal Navies would make it impossible for the Germans to reasonably distinguish between them. There can be no question, if we are to face the situation frankly, that the patrol operations of the Atlantic Fleet, two or 3,000 miles offshore necessarily, involve increased hazards of such incident as an American warboat struck by a German torpedo. It is essential that the American people know the implications and potentialities of this new policy. It undoubtedly means a shooting war in the near future. So Woodruff, he knew the realities of war firsthand, having served as an infantry officer in France for two years during the First World War, attaining the rank of major. Um, it's actually kind of a common theme here, just because of the time, the ages of the people involved. A lot of the people making these decisions in the U.S. Congress are veterans of the First World War. It's kind of a kind of a different time, I guess you'd say, of you know who who is making these decisions. What experience do those people have? A lot of these people did have firsthand experience of what are we actually talking about when we talk about war? Yeah, it is interesting that there's such a reluctance to get into World War II that mm -hmm. it literally does take like a direct attack from Japan to to get it there. That was the most enlightening thing for me doing all this research on the Reuben James was how long we are basically in the war before we're actually in the war. Like I knew about Lend-Lease. Mm -hmm. But there's stuff we're going to get into here here where it's like yeah, like the, the United States is in the war. Yeah, you yeah, know, some of this stuff is pretty, pretty interesting. Like, you, the, I don't think you necessarily learn about this stuff when you get like your, your high yeah, level you, overview you, of World War II. You really II. don't. On May 27th of 1941, President Roosevelt addressed the nation by radio to announce the expansion of U.S. Navy patrol operations in the Atlantic. We have accordingly extended our patrol in North and South Atlantic waters. We are steadily adding more ships and planes to that patrol. These ships and planes warn of the presence of attacking raiders. All additional measures necessary to deliver the goods will be taken. Any and all further methods or combinations of methods which can or should be utilized are being devised by our military and naval technicians, who with me will work out and put into effect such new and additional safeguards as may be necessary. So the U.S. Navy's role increased throughout the summer of 1941, including a task force of Marines to be dispatched to Iceland with an escort of two battleships, three light cruisers, and 13 destroyers. This came up at some point an episode. I don't remember why, but you, you had brought this up, and I, I didn't know that this happened at all in World mm -hmm. War II. I think I remember it was also in a book I was reading about some naval stuff in mm -hmm. World War II. And we pretty much just invaded Iceland and said, yeah, we were asked to come here. 
Yeah, Iceland's uh, scare quotes request for these troops was not revealed to the American public until July 7th. This is about a week after the convoy had departed. Americans did not know that this existed, that this was something that we were going to be doing until it was already fait accompli. Roosevelt's message to Congress included the following explanations. It is therefore imperative that the approaches between the Americas and these strategic outposts the safety of which this country regards as essential to its national security and which it must therefore defend shall remain open and free of all hostile activity or threat thereof. As commander in chief, I have consequently issued orders to the Navy that all necessary steps be taken to ensure the safety of communications in the approaches between Iceland and the United States and all other strategic outposts. Through the late summer of 1941, negotiations continued between Roosevelt and Churchill regarding the U.S. role regarding British shipping. After a conference between the two leaders at Placentia Bay in Newfoundland, it was worked out that the U.S. Navy would take on responsibility for protecting British shipping in the Western Atlantic. So under this new agreement, Admiral King was instructed to Destroy surface raiders which attack shipping along the sea lanes between North America and Iceland, or which approach the lanes sufficiently close to threaten such shipping. Admiral King interpreted hostile forces in this situation as those deemed to threaten United States or Iceland flag shipping if they enter the sea lanes which lie between North America and Iceland, or enter the neutrality zone of the Atlantic Ocean described in the Declaration of Panama. There's like some like ghosts of the Monroe Doctrine in this, I feel like, you know? <laughs> I mean, if you take all those things together, looking at what the U.S. Navy has asset-wise and what they're being ordered to do, all those things together, this is basically orders to engage German vessels on site. Mm-hmm. Because you're saying if a ship does attack a convoy or you think it might... So, I mean, this is if you detect on radar, if you see German vessels, you can attack them. How are we not in the war at this point? Yeah, it's very much like I felt threatened and pulled my gun. That's what we're doing. Like right or wrong. I mean, obviously, we're trying to support the allies here, but it's crazy to to think that like, well, technically, the US is not in the war at this point. Well, and how much of that is just like domestic politics? Mm hmm. Of like, we have to kind of obscure some of the stuff that we're doing because it's not popular and no one wants to do it. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's like how how we wage wars now. It's like, you know, Congress isn't going to approve a war, but, you know, the president can use his executive orders, you know, whatever, you know, send a, a limited military force or whatever. Police action. Ask Somalia. So the Reuben James saw her first convoy duty in September of 1941 as part of convoy ON-20 which had departed Liverpool on September 25th. So we mentioned that with like the Western versus the Eastern Atlantic. The James joined up with this convoy on September 30th, along with four other destroyers uh, for the Western Atlantic portion of the route. So basically getting passed off from the British to the United States. A few weeks later, the Reuben James was part of another convoy, HX-156, heading back the other way from Nova Scotia to Iceland. The roughly 50-ship convoy had departed from Halifax on October 22nd and was joined by the American Destroyer Task Force on the 24th. So in addition to the Reuben James, this included the destroyers Nye Black, Tarbell, Benson, and Hillary P. Jones. 
some interesting names in there. And here we come to the incident. Also, I just want to say that has to be really chilly up there in in those parts in yeah. late October. Mm-hmm. Not nice. In late October 1941, the Reuben James is in this convoy west of Iceland, commanded by Lieutenant Commander Haywood L. Edwards. Also in the area west of Iceland, a returning character to the show. Our boy. This is Kapitän Leutnant Eric Topp of the U-552. We first encountered Eric Topp and his Red Devil boat way, way back. Season one, I think. Mm, it was a long time ago. Uh, talking about the, the Atlas tanker, uh, which was torpedoed off at the North Carolina coast in 1942. Yeah, this guy, like, after the story we tell today, goes on to do quite a bit of work off the coast of North Carolina and Virginia. Yeah, he stays on his bullshit. <laughs> Before dawn on October 31st, 1941, an explosion ripped through the Reuben James. Shortly after, a second blast followed as the ship's magazine went up. It was determined that this was from the port side that this torpedo struck. At the time, obviously, things are confusing. The survivors weren't quite sure which way it had come from. From a New York Times article on the sinking from November 25th, uh, this is working from the account of Chief Petty Officer and Machinist Mate William Bergstresser. With six other men in the two engine rooms, he went topside to appraise the damage. The flow of steam was interrupted, so the lights were eliminated, he said. The James shook, shivered with a sinking motion, and when he arrived on deck, was down by the bow. The whole forward part of the ship was demolished, and the bridge, with its means of signaling by radio and lights, was carried away. Calls to the bridge control, even shouted, brought no response. Uh, Gunner's mate Rudolf Capez, age 28, had been on watch at the aft anti-aircraft gun. And it was Gunner's mate Capez who informed Chief Petty Officer Bergstresser that none of the ship's officers, whose quarters were in the bow section, had survived the explosion. This left Bergstresser in command of whoever was left. That's a lot to take in. <laughs> it is, and he's a, a chief petty officer is, to my understanding, basically equivalent to like a sergeant in, in the army, where you are, you're a non-commissioned officer. Mm -hmm. Not someone who would typically find themselves in command of an entire ship. A, a ship. That's a lot to take on, uh, you know, in, in a matter of seconds here. But Bergstresser handles it pretty well. He ordered three of the ship's life rafts thrown into the water and ordered the remaining crew into the rafts. Time in this story is a bit wonky with some of the accounts being drastically different. Um, his account says that 20 minutes passed uh, and with the rafts about 100 yards from the stricken destroyer, another explosion rocked the Reuben James and she went under completely. Uh, in an article on the sinking from November 27th, 1941, the New York Times reported on a particularly terrifying twist to the sinking of the Reuben James. Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox today verified reports originating in New York that two of the Reuben James' own depth bombs exploded as the destroyer sank after being torpedoed by a German submarine and while members of her crew were floundering in the water. He said it was impossible to ascertain how many, if any, of the crew were killed by their own depth charges. 
but that the occurrence was a regrettable result of the ships being prepared for action. Uh, according to the Navy Secretary, two of the depth charges had been sitting in the Y-gun, set to explode at depths of 50 and 100 feet. Survivors reported that some who had made it into the water were drowned after the depth charge explosions tore off their life belts. Fireman Robert Carr of Buffalo said that he was with 25 or 30 men on a raft about 75 feet from the sinking Reuben James when two depth charge blasts sent the raft spinning like a top, and that when he swam back to the raft, only 15 men were in it. Uh, so Bergstresser did report that you know when the ship itself goes down, they're on these rafts. That does have a a major hit to morale. We've talked about you know the impact that has. We said that with the Essex, you know they get into the boats and then the Essex finally sinks, and it actually kind of raises their morale mm-hmm. because okay, that option is gone. Yeah, um, like we, we have to survive have to some now. other way. Here we kind of have the opposite. Um, mm-hmm. I think understandably, you know, you've just been torpedoed. There are literally enemy boats around you in the water. So yeah, losing that feeling of safety with with the ship that you have been on, it makes sense. You're you're on this life raft all alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't record the names of the ships, but they were um, the survivors were picked up by other destroyers uh, in the area. That is one good thing about being part of a convoy, as long as you know they're willing to stop. Um, so let's talk more about casualties and survivors. Um, So the nature of the incident and the available communication technology at the time led to the expected delay in real concrete casualty numbers. Since the Reuben James was traveling as part of a convoy when she's torpedoed, hopes were initially high that most of her crew would have been able to reach another vessel safely. On November 2nd, the New York Times ran an article with the headline, Hope Still Held for Sea Missing. Navy says some of 76 from James may be on vessels avoiding use of radio meaning here that any ships that had picked up survivors would probably not be announcing that until they had safely reached port, Mm -hmm. trying not to tell the U-boats where you are. Right. Relating to the men's survival chances in the water, the New York Times wrote, The Reuben James carried 15% more life-saving equipment than necessary. This included motor whale boats, which are capable of weathering even a North Atlantic gale, balsa life rafts, other life rafts, and life preservers. Whether there was an opportunity to get the boats and rafts away and get the men into them was not known. Men and life preservers could not survive long in the almost freezing waters of the North Atlantic at this time of the year. So we have another situation where at a time when you really, really need the lifeboats, it's going to be really hard to use them. Kind of like the SS Milwaukee, where even if you got in the boats, it probably wouldn't have been much better. So the Navy Department's original casualty report listed 88 sailors and six officers killed in the sinking for a total of 94. By November 6th, the reported death toll had reached 100. Uh, the final accepted death toll in the sinking of the Reuben James is was 115 out of a total complement of 160 aboard. Numbers here are a bit shaky. Um, there's just some slight differences you see with different sources, different reports from the time. You commonly see 44 given as the total number of survivors. Mm-hmm. Some sources do show 45. I think one point of potential confusion is, is the way that they talk about Chief Petty Officer Bergstresser. 
because he's kind of the one in command, he's usually talked about separately plus the other survivors. So I think mm-hmm. sometimes it can be confused as to is he part of the 44 or is he in addition to the 44? Right. Plus, he has that officer in his title that could lead to further confusion. Yeah, especially in the days like before, like fact checking is easy. True. Another complicating factor, I saw one source showed that there was one enlisted passenger on board. So, yes, he's enlisted, but he's not technically part of the crew. How is he being included in these numbers? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's roughly 44 to 45 people who do make it off the Reuben James. Chief Petty Officer Bergstrasser attributed the number of survivors to standing orders from Lieutenant Commander Haywood Edwards that all men on board were to have their life belts at hand at all times. The whole first part of this episode, we talked about the slow build that creep towards a war footing. Mm-hmm. And this is part of that, saying we are going to operate as if we are at war because we basically are. Right. Um, and that ends up saving people, most likely here. Even among the chaos of a sinking warship, though, there are sometimes moments of levity. One seaman, despite the disaster, had the yin to find out how the water was before going overside. William Westbury, a hairy-chested 30-year-old machinist mate from Charleston, South Carolina, took off his shoe and, like a maxinette bathing beauty, dipped in his foot. It was cold, he said. (laughs) <laughs> it's just a comical <laughs> image of like the ship going down around you and <laughs> testing the water first. <laughs> yeah. As, like it's going to matter as if there's an option. <laughs> um, the survivors of the Reuben James arrived back in New York city on November 24th aboard the transport ship Algarab. That sounds like the name of a demon. <laughs> it does. Um, I, I might not be pronouncing it right. They were transferred to the receiving ship USS Seattle where they were interviewed and had their statements on the sinking recorded by naval authorities. Um, So most of the accounts, that's where they come from, is this kind of debriefing they have in New York. We we love a good bit of humor, like that that last story that Mm -hmm. you just read, that last little anecdote. One thing we also love in a shipwreck is premonitions. Mm, Yes, always a good time. The New York Times ran an article on November 5th, 1941, The headline, two on Destroyer had premonitions. Friends here say Reuben James crew members foresaw death. I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's pretty short. Friends of two of the crew, the Reuben James, who have now been given up as dead by the U.S. Navy, disclosed yesterday that they had premonitions they would lose their lives. The two sailors were Frederick R. Post, 47-year-old boatswain's mate of 233 East 32nd Street, and Jesse Weaver, a first-class seaman of West Point, Tennessee, a chum of Mr. Post. In taking a drink recently with George Richmond, superintendent of the East 32nd Street building, Mr. Post remarked, Here's the last drink you and I will ever have together. Lillian Urban, 21 years old, of 247 East 32nd Street, whose sailor friend formerly was on the Reuben James and is now in Iceland, told of receiving a letter dated October 23rd from Mr. Weaver, stating in part, You will read my name along with the rest of the missing sooner or later, and find I was still on the mighty Reuben James. We love a premonition. Spooky. So let's talk the aftermath of the Reuben James. Mm -hmm. We got a cool song. We did get that out of it. We'll talk about that at the end. (laughs) President Roosevelt stated that the sinking of the Reuben James did nothing to change the United States current stance to the war or to Germany. I want everyone to stop and just try to picture 
something even remotely similar happening today and like whatever country did that like what our response would be i mean the concept of of a u.s vessel being able to be sunk is on its own kind of Mm -hmm. amazing to think about was the uss cole like the most recent that didn't even sink yeah like the most recent thing that got close Um, i would say probably it's the last thing i can think of we'll see what ansara law can pull off (laughs) so reactions in congress congressional reactions to the sinking of the reuben james centered mostly around the neutrality act and its proposed repeal. So it still technically exists here. Senator Tom Connolly, the Democrat from Texas, called the sinking of the Reuben James an outrageous evidence of the murderous and defiant attitude of the Nazis. I read that like in a Bernie Sanders voice in my head, even though he's from Texas. An outrageous evidence of the murderous and defiant attitude of the Nazis. That was not my Bernie Sanders. That was yeah, my. That was your Texas. Bernie that was my Sanders. generic Southern congressman because I can't do a specific Texas accent. <laughs> but you know, as cool as that sounds from Senator Connolly, before we are too tempted to call him based as hell, uh, there's a few other things that he is most known for. One of them is supporting the Jim Crow laws and opposing federal anti-lynching legislation. Oh no! Uh, support for anti-German and anti-Japanese legislation during World War II cheerleading the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan, and then I guess maybe slightly less egregious than Jim Crow is the creation of NATO, which, depending on who you ask, (laughs) maybe there was a time and a place for it, maybe it's outlived its usefulness, maybe it's great. Depends on who you talk to. I'm just, like, not surprising. Anytime you see that Southern Democrat pre-like 1965 or so, like, yeah, (laughs) it's not good. Yeah, so Senator Warren Austin, Republican from Vermont, stated that the sinking absolutely refutes the contention of the opponents of repeal of the Neutrality Act that the act, as it stands now, can keep this nation out of war. It ought to be plain now that defeat of the pending legislation would be a humiliating surrender to Hitlerism. Now, that was a time for the Bernie Sanders impression, the senator from (laughs) Vermont. A Republican from Vermont. Yeah. Imagine that happening today. Uh, Senate Majority Whip at the time, J. Lister Hill of Alabama, a Democrat. We're not going to look up his voting record. (laughs) Also made the case for a more aggressive stance towards Germany. For a long time, Hitler has been making secret war, and now he seems to be making open warfare. He knows we stand between him and his plans for conquest of the world. The sinking ought to make us more determined that he be destroyed, and destroyed in Europe. I, it's interesting looking at the, the development of this as the United States navigates the Neutrality Acts, these laws that they have passed to stay out of a European war. And it's interesting to see the language that's used by the people who are increasingly calling for the United States to get involved because they're not selling it as a European war. They're saying this is a defensive war. We need to defend our livelihood, but we have to have that fight in Europe because if we don't, we're going to have to fight it here. Yeah, it's so interesting looking at like the pre-pre-World War II stuff where you're seeing these debates and how it shifts and you know Eventually, like that is kind of how it's sold is like, well, we're going to have to do this now or later. We might as well do it when it's in Europe. 
you've mentioned this on several episodes before. It's it is hard as a modern reader to read the pre World War II stuff with kind of an objective eye because mm-hmm. in in retrospective we know exactly who Hitler was, what he was doing, and we we can see all of the goals of the Nazi state. Uh, he he's not just some other bully dictator. He he's on a special level of evil uh, in in most people's eyes. It's just like important to remember, like if you're just like a dude in Ohio or a dude in Wisconsin at that time, like you probably don't know all these things, and like and yeah, like you just don't want to send your kid or you off to war. Yeah, like I, especially having you know if you've experienced the First World War, you do kind of have to think of it in that perspective of you know what's so different about this one? Why why should why should we send our kids to go fight in another one of these wars? Whereas in retrospect, we know that like. Okay, there are unique qualities to mm-hmm. to World War II. Not that those were the only reasons we were fighting World War II. Like it's it's ahistorical to say that we invaded Europe to to end the Holocaust. But yeah, it's it's harder to see that objectively in retrospect, knowing mm-hmm. what we know. So when you see people talking about, well, we don't need to fight Hitler, it maybe didn't sound as bad at the time. Right. Yeah. It's the people that are still saying it in like <laughs> late 1941 and 42 that are the problem it's the people saying it in 2024 that are the (laughs) problem i think (laughs) um so opposition to the repeal of the neutrality acts came from senator robert a taft of ohio a republican yes son of the former president and supreme court chief justice william howard taft i think one of the interesting things about william howard taft is that like he was president but like what he really wanted was to be chief justice of the supreme court it is funny. And I think he, he was chief justice after he was president. Yeah, I, I believe so. Now, uh, imagine that today. Now, after you're president, you just, you know, write books and top 10 podcast lists. And hope you don't show up on the Epstein list. Right. <laughs> People, you, you still had to go to work after you were president back then. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, Taft, his, his son here, uh, Taft conceded that the loss of the James was regrettable but as far as the neutrality act was concerned if the losses are going to be this heavy in convoying in our defensive waters they may be so heavy convoying the rest of the way into british ports that we don't have anything left to defend ourselves with i think the incident is an argument against extending the convoy system into british waters this guy sucks well, kind of like what what it kind of reminds me of is um, who was the guy we talked about in Lusitania? Um, the guy that Roosevelt had to fire. Um, mm, can't think of his name, but I know who you're talking about. Oh, he's he's one of the three name guys. Um, William Jennings Bryan. That's what I'm thinking of. What this reminds me of is uh, when we talked about Lusitania, the aftermath of that sinking, William Jennings Bryan, uh, the Secretary of State at the time, how he had come out basically saying that for the United States to preserve neutrality, urging Great Britain to apologize to Germany (laughs) in the aftermath of that. And it's like, you know, regardless of what legal uh, arguments you might have for that, and, and there are some that he made you just get the feeling that this is not going to go well with the public. Yeah. I I looked up our boy, 
one of Ohio's heroes, Robert Taft. Let's just say he has an entry in his Wikipedia page called Condemnation of Nuremberg Trials. Oh, God. So (laughs) he wasn't a fan of those either, apparently. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Hmm. So the apocryphal story of getting stuck in his bathtub is not the most embarrassing thing that happened to that family. No, in fact, yeah, his what, grandson? Or is this his son? This is his son. Hmm. Apparently decided he wanted to be, like, super principled about the Nuremberg trials. (laughs) Yeah, this is just one of those things where it's like... Oh, no. Did you find something else? Yes. Oh, no. We can't... We're not going to include this part in the episode. This is the first line of this section. Taft was a leading supporter of the new state of... Oh, no. You know, I think I do remember that coming up. Let's see. Um, We've been derailed by Robert Taft. Robert Taft here is bowing to Nazi intimidation, just wholeheartedly tail between his legs, saying, okay, okay, we give up. Let's see. While not a congressman, still an influential voice in politics, New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. So if you've ever flown in or out of LaGuardia, this is who it's named for, former mayor of New York City. He said of the sinking of the Reuben James that the national patience was being tried and that the Reuben James had been entirely within her rights to be where she was. We are approaching a point of danger very rapidly. When we started to make studies of defensive measures in England, the danger here was theoretical. Now this destroyer has been sunk. Don't you see how it is creeping up on us all the time? LaGuardia also leaned on his military experience to support his position. I lived through this once before. I was a member of Congress and left Congress to go to the army. I know what it means to cast a vote to plunge one's country into war. I know what war is, and I know what the aftermath of war is. Why, in 1920, we in Congress hoped and believed that we had terminated and ended war forever. So a, a bit more muscular stance there saying well, this this needs to be dealt with. Instead of letting it creep up on us, we have to be aggressive about this. I feel like LaGuardia would have fought Taft in the street. <laughs> All these debates over the U.S. role in the war would become something of a moot point after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th. Dare I say the day World War II just started. The day that World War II just started, exactly. I think World War II just started! World War II! World War II! That kind of ends the debate, makes the decision for us. And so now the Reuben James is kind of seen as, I don't know, something of like a prequel, a teaser to World War II, even though kind of as we looked at World War II is basically already happening in the Atlantic. The Reuben James is is not the only U.S. ship that is torpedoed uh, before the technical uh, declaration of war with Germany. Yeah, and then pretty quickly, they're picking off shipping left and right off the Atlantic coast. I actually read an interesting article about radar capabilities in World War II. Don't have time for it here. Maybe it'd be a good bonus episode. Uh, But talking about how basically with increased British radar capabilities, the submarines basically got pushed further and further and further out into the Atlantic and kind of go through a little bit of a dry period until the U.S. is in the war. And then suddenly this whole new fertile hunting grounds open up. And that's when you have the happy times. Operation Drumbeat. 
but yeah, it was interesting to see how that development happened. And, you know, without the US really having the defensive capabilities, it really is just open season on American shipping. Um, so the sinking of the Reuben James, as we mentioned right away in the episode, is is probably best remembered in song. Uh, it has an immediate cultural impact on the U.S. Uh, Woody Guthrie, uh, he writes a song called The Sinking of the Reuben James. He has a recorded version of it. Pete Seeger has a version of it. I think the Pete Seeger version might might be more popular. I um, listened to the Kingston trio version. It was fine. It was good. The original idea for the song was apparently to name each of the men who died in the sinking. It's going to do like an Alice's restaurant thing. But it was discarded as being impractical. I mean, that would be impractical even for like the Edmund Fitzgerald, like <laughs> 29 people. That would be a pretty clunky song, probably. And here you've got, what, 115 to get through. So if you know the song, of course, you know, rather than listing all of the names, he asks the question, what were their names? What were their names? Did you have a friend on the good Reuben James? And actually, this led me to an interesting article called Woody Guthrie's Union War. That definitely I want to cover in a bonus because it connects to this wreck and it also connects to other stuff we like, like Woody Guthrie and music. So I do want to keep that in the back pocket for a bonus. But yeah, this is this is kind of our, our opening salvo here. Season four, I keep wanting to say season one. Of season four of Beyond the Breakers, do do you have any final thoughts on the Reuben James before we close off? No, it's just uh, it's it's just an interesting story, like looking at how different the world landscape is in the late '30s, early '40s versus versus now. You know, you think about something like this happening, and like you said, like I don't think we can conceptualize of like a major American warship being sunk. A good example here is is the events in the Red Sea mm-hmm. uh, with Yemen and Ansar Allah is. And I think this was this was kind of by and large the the reaction that you saw, you know, on Twitter, certainly from maritime Twitter, which is annoying sometimes. But the idea of Ansar Allah even threatening a U.S. vessel is kind of laughable. And I don't mean that like derisively, but it is inconceivable that, you know, a Mm -hmm. a what some would consider a non-state actor could even possibly threaten a U.S. vessel. I mean, I think the last big example you have is probably the Falklands, mm. where, you know, you've got nuclear armed power losing vessels. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it is kind of an interesting perspective. It's a difficult perspective to keep in mind of at the time of what this was like of having U.S. vessels actually be at risk uh, of being sunk. You know, U.S. sailors actually being in a good amount of danger. It's really interesting to to do these stories of of a very different time absolutely i don't know i feel like there's probably going to be a little bit of a theme of some uh u.s navy kind of stuff here at the beginning mm-hmm. of the season because i don't know i'm just kind of into it right now we can shut things down there and we will be back should be back uh next week with something new for you uh thank you for rejoining us here for season four we're really looking forward to it we feel rejuvenated and ready to go so until next week take care have you heard of a ship called the Good Reuben James? Manned by hard fighting men, both of honor and fame. She flew the stars and stripes of this land of the free. Tonight she's in her grave on the bottom of the sea.
Tell me what was their names, tell me what was their names. You have a friend on that good roof and James. What was their names, tell me what was their names. You have a friend on that good roof and James. Well, a hundred men went down in that dark, watery grave. When that good ship went down, only forty-four were saved. Was the last day of October, we saved the forty-four from the cold ocean waters of that cold icy shore. Tell me what was their names? Tell me what was their names? Did you have a friend on that good roof and James? What was their names? Tell me what was their names? You have a friend on that good roof.